Welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. And this weekend, we are celebrating the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord ascends to heaven, and as promised, he sends the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's easy in some respects to think of the Father because we all have fathers in our life. It's easy to think of a son. We understand as a son as a relationship to the Father. But I think the challenge of the Holy Spirit is how to think about the Spirit that in our Catholic understanding as we prepare to celebrate the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity next weekend, to remember that the Holy Spirit is the love that is exchanged between the Father and the Son, and that the call to Christian life is to live in that spirit, that relationship of love between the Father and the Son, so real that it's personal, so real that it becomes personal in you. But what do we mean by the love of God? And so here's a way to think about the Holy Spirit rooted in your experience that frees the Holy Spirit from being merely an abstraction. Because the Holy Spirit is God, we can only talk about the Holy Spirit in an analogous way to say the Holy Spirit is like. Um, because God is the basis of all existence. He is not us, but we can talk about God in analogous terms because he himself revealed himself, the Father reveals himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, overshadowing our Blessed Lady and being made present in the Son. And so taking from the Incarnation, think about how you can understand the work of the Holy Spirit. To love God is to love the good. To love the good is to love true excellence. In human experience, you can, in some way, experience excellence. In our culture, we love excellence, but think about it. When we celebrate excellence, we celebrate excellence of a talented athlete, someone who performs amazingly on the football field or on the basketball court in the baseball diamond or men and women's um, uh, soccer. We um, celebrate the great scientists, the great intellectual uh, uh, of our uh, intellectuals of our world that accomplish things like Albert Einstein um, uh, or George Lamartre, Father George Lamartre, who uh, thought of the idea of the Big Bang. Uh, in popular culture, you celebrate actors, you celebrate entrepreneurs like uh, Elon Musk or uh, Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos. These become celebrities because in some ways they've achieved some kind of excellence. But to reduce excellence just to the athletic field or the arts or understanding materiality or being very successful and making a lot of money is not the highest excellence that we can think of. Uh, there is a reason why someone like John Paul II, St. John Paul II, or Mother Teresa of Calcutta are celebrated and were celebrated in their own time. Their excellence was a spiritual good. It's the excellence of, uh, of sanctity. And so think about this, about the good, because to have a physical good like being a great athlete or an artist, 
this is a great thing, to uh, the genius of intelligence, like scholars and scientists, I throw poets in there, obviously. This is something to be celebrated. But holiness, holiness stands in its own category. It's not like being a great athlete. It's not like uh, being really successful in business. To understand the goodness of holiness, whether it's made present in someone like John Paul or Mother Teresa of Calcutta, or in the people you're experiencing in your own life, is to appreciate excellence. To appreciate excellence, you're appreciating something truly good. And holiness says, contrary to um, physical goodness or the goodness of uh, intellectual accomplishment, the, holy, the goodness of holiness participates at a higher pitch in reality. And so our Blessed Lady, the saints, the thing about holiness that is so different from athletic excess, success or the success of the arts or the success of intellectual pursuits is um, truly holiness lasts forever because it's not of this world. Uh, holiness, in holiness we excel in a way that more world-bound pursuits uh, simply can't uh, help us with. And so what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's the love of goodness. The Holy Spirit is the love of excellence. You can't simply reduce the Holy Spirit to these analogous understandings that I'm proposing to you. But what I want you to think about is holiness in your own life. Is If you can admire the excellence in an athlete, an artist, an intellectual, um, what is it that you admire about excellence in your own life? Is it the, how good you are at the profession you have? Is it how successful you've been? Or is it something about how you've touched the lives of your spouse, your children, the friends, the people that you meet and love in your everyday walk of life? This is the experience of the Holy Spirit. I don't think the Greeks or the Romans could understand that. I think there's a lot of people in our own culture that don't understand it. To see that kind of goodness is to understand something very important about uh, holiness. And so today as we talk about uh, the Feast of Pentecost, we remember that when the Spirit came down on the apostles and Mary and the other disciples in that upper room, something happened to transform their lives because the excellence of holiness is transformative. Let's turn to the gospel now. So we're talking about holiness as we begin to think about Acts of the Apostle and the Gospel of John that are part of the readings for Pentecost Sunday. But what does it mean to be holy? You know, I talked about the, well, the three ways you could be successful in life. Some mastery of some physical skill like athletics or the mastery of some intellectual skill like being a scientist or an artist or a writer. Um, uh, some great use of your mind, a wonderful lawyer. Um, but then we talked about holiness. And the problem is if you think of those things the, the same way, you really have to be born with some talent, some physical talent to be an athlete. 
it's honed by discipline and hard work. If you want to be successful in some intellectual pursuit, you better have some little gray cells uh, percolating between your ears. And then it's study and it's work and probably some good luck. But holiness is different. See, holiness is a gift from God. Holiness is the participation in the resurrected Jesus. You know what makes the Catholic religion, the Christian religion in general, Catholicism and Orthodoxy in particular, different from any of the world, other world religions? The other world religions will give you a discipline by, where, by which you uh, achieve the, the goal. Uh, maybe it's being uh, Torah faithful or it's uh, the pillars of, of wisdom. Whatever the discipline is, uh, it's different. It's completely the opposite in Catholicism. In Catholicism, holiness is something God does for you. Um, the Spirit of God comes rushing on you in your baptism and in confirmation of the Eucharist. And so you become holy. You participate in the holiness of God through Scripture. And so the moral life is not about entry into the life of grace. It is how you live up to the life of grace, which has been conferred on you in the sacraments and you're called to in the Gospels. And so the life of grace transforms us and makes us holy like God is holy. Um, that's why St. Paul calls us uh, treasures in earthen vessels. Uh, and the work that we do, the discipline that we have, the sacrifices that we make are really to try to remove sin so that the grace of God can be operative in us. It's not we get rid of sin in our lives and then God's grace comes to us. It's God's grace come to us and then we try to live up to this uh, baptismal calling. Uh, that's the transformation of holiness. Um, and it starts with a supernatural gift, not a natural talent like physical excellence or intellectual excellence. Uh, it's an excellence conferred on us uh, by the life of grace. And so for us, salvation is always what God has done for us. So let's think about that as we think about the readings uh, for this Sunday. Um, chapter 2 of the Acts of the Apostles um, says this, When the time for Pentecost was fulfilled, they were all in one place together. And suddenly there came from the sky a noise like a strong driving wind, and it filled the entire house in which they were. Then there appeared to them tongues as of fire, which parted and came to rest on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them to proclaim. And so think of, it goes on, but think about the backdrop of that. Is First, you go to Genesis chapter 1. And what it says there is that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And so uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form or shape, with darkness over the abyss and a mighty wind sweeping over the waters, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. God then separated the light from the darkness. 
And so this mighty wind that is evident in the Acts of the Apostles goes back uh, to chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, but it's also in chapter 2. So this reference, this mighty wind and the tongues of fire I'll get to, but this mighty wind really goes back to the Old Testament. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, and this is the creation of the human being. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and placed there the man whom he had formed. And so when you think of the Acts of the Apostles and the mighty wind, it goes back to this wind sweeping over the formless abyss. It goes back to the breath of life that God breathed into the man. And for the tongues of fire, if you remember in Exodus, when God comes down on the mountain, and I think it's Exodus 19, God comes down on the mountain in Sinai. He comes down in a cloud and in fire. And so this way of talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit is a way of saying that recreation is happening, that the human person is being transformed. And it's really very evident in Luke and the Acts of the Apostles because you remember in all of the Gospels as these guys walk down the road with our Lord, they're always thinking about who is going to be the greatest amongst them. They fight with each other. There's always the I, the I at the center of uh, walking with Jesus. What's in this for me? How am I going to get through all of this? But when you turn to the Acts of the Apostles, um, it goes from the I to the we. They begin talking as the love of God joins them together. This is an excellence of sanctification by God. But you also see it in the um, Gospels for today. So if you turn to the Gospel, um, it's John chapter 20, uh, verses 19 to 23. And this is the story of the resurrection that we had probably on Easter morning. On the evening of that first day of the week when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you retain are retained. And so again, it's this breath of God that's made present um, in Genesis, but also in the story of the Acts of the Apostles in John. It's being breathed in a new life. And so holiness is something God gives to us. Saints are creatures of grace. They're not just... Uh, like an athlete or an, uh, an, an intellectual um, idol, uh, someone who has just taken their natural abilities and worked really hard and become something very special. It's people who have lived up to their baptismal promises, and that's why Leon Blois said the only real tragedy in life is not to be a saint. You see, we have gifts by nature and gifts by grace, and the gifts by grace are the gifts that are made present in the Holy Spirit. So let's take a moment and think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our life and how 
we can experience them in our pursuit of virtue and that in taking on and fighting sin in our life, in uh, trying to develop and live a life of virtue, we are trying to live up to the baptismal graces that we receive, the sacraments of the initiation, and then hoping for transformation by God. So let's turn to that right now. You know, one of the struggles in American culture is the question about the meaning and purpose of life. For those who say life is meaningless or creation is just completely random, there's no purpose to it. Albert Camus, the famous existentialist, said that life was ultimately absurd. Uh, well, that, that's obviously very contrary to the Catholic experience and the Catholic wisdom of life. There is an end and a purpose to life, what the Greeks would have called a telos, um, and that's where we get the word te teleology from. And the end and purpose of life is sanctity, and sanctity is in communion with God. It's why in our sacramental practice, we ritualize what human life is. You enter into the death of Christ through baptism, you experience the life-giving spirit in confirmation, and then communion with God in the Eucharist, and that if your life responds to that grace by the choices that you make and how you respond, what is made present in sacrament becomes the reality eternally. So the Catholic faith has always made so much more sense to me than anything else. And that Jesus doesn't just give us a rule book. Jesus walks with us through life. That's always the key to the gospel. Jesus walks and Jesus uh, teaches his disciples. So that growth and holiness of getting sin out of our life, the, uh, the narrow-mindedness of the apostles where they're always talking about I, can, can open up to the experience of the we, which is the love of God and the love of neighbor, where we all come together in communion. You know, it's, it's interesting because... The way that we talk about this in the faith, probably not enough, is about virtue. You know, virtue, vir, is a Latin term for manliness. But the Latins did not make up the concept of virtue. They uh, took it from the Greeks. And how the Greeks described virtue is, I think, a much more rational human way of understanding virtue. The word that the Greeks used that was translated as virtue was the Greek word eudaimonia. And eudaimonia means full human flourishing. So Aristotle's idea, for instance, was that in order to flourish fully as a human being, uh, you have to have these certain hinge, these cardinal virtues, which are justice and prudence and moderation uh, temperance, it's called, in courage. Um, justice is this sense of right relationship between uh, me and everybody else and their right relationship to us. It's the basis of human flourishing. Prudence is an intellectual virtue, so it builds on intellectual uh, excellence, the ability to make the right decision in the right time, to know who you are, what your context is, and to just know what to do that serves the good. Um, 
Temperance is a physical virtue. It's about limiting appetites, and it's really, um, it's really contextual uh, because, say, for instance, a farm worker might eat more than a lawyer eats, uh, and so temperance for a farm worker might look different than a lawyer. So there's a relativism in the idea of temperance, but temperance is a goal for how it is that you discipline yourself or the very important uh, virtue, which uh, I think is really under assault in the United States, courage, which is steadfast endurance. Um, in one sense, it's a steadfast endurance as a, a Greek hoplite might be in a phalanx. But for us in our American context, steadfast endurance is keeping the faith, living this life of virtue. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, who brought Aristotle really into the Western conversation, which had been so long dominated by Plato, Thomas Aquinas redirected, in a sense, um, the goal of virtue, the telos of virtue, the teleology of life, from simply human flourishing to communion in God. That the point of virtue was to be able to participate more fully in communion with God, to participate in God, especially through of the Holy Spirit. And so virtue is the way that we try to grow in our capacity to love God and love our neighbor. And it has to be just, there has to be good judgment. We have to understand boundaries, temperance, where we end and someone else begins. And then even as we struggle in this life that we live uh, steadfast endurance, uh, courage. You know, one of the things that uh, has got me very interested in this was a great book that's written by a legal scholar named Erko Bakiaki, uh, and she lives, I hope I said the name right, uh, and she's from Boston, and she's a fellow at the, um, uh, the Institute uh, in Boston, which is now just escaping my mind, but uh, she's uh, a part of the Abigail Adams Institute. And in that institute, she's part of the, Mar the Wollstonecraft Project. Mary Wollstonecraft, she wrote a great book about this, Erica Bakiaki. She wrote a great book called The Rights of Women, uh, a, a Lost Vision Recovering, or Recovering a Lost Vision. And I just finished the book, and she is a one smart lawyer from Boston. And it's really well worth reading for men and women, reading it together, because here's the, her understanding of the woman's movement, where it's kind of taken a wrong turn, and how men and women can get back on the same page, um, and really uh, to bring flourishing into families and the culture through the right relationship between men and women. So she starts talking about Mary Wollstonecraft, who might be considered a feminist in the 18th century. And in 1792, she wrote a book called Vindication of the Rights of Women. And this is where uh, Miss Bakiaki's book, Recovering This Lost Vision, starts off with. And this was Mary Wollstonecraft's idea. She was, lived in a context where men basically controlled everything. Coverture marriage meant mainly that the husband basically owned the wife because he was supposed to protect her. Under the romantic understandings of the time, men were rational, 
women were emotional and women needed to be protected from the harshness of the world and their own excesses. I, I know you've heard this before, but there's a sexual double standard uh, for men and women. What, who, what chastity requires of women is something different from men. But Wollstonecraft calls her culture on it and says that what's really needed is that men and women, in order to flourish, have to both have the opportunities to develop the God-given gifts that they were given. So if they have physical gifts, like a great athlete, then they should be able to develop that. If they've had intellectual gifts um, that uh, makes them a philosopher or a scientist or an artist or a writer or a teacher, they should be able to develop that. She talks about God, but she's an Anglican. And so their understanding of how they think about all this is really something different from our Catholic faith. But the idea that she comes up with, which is that the key to the successful working of the vindication of the rights of women, and I would say the vindication of the rights of men, is that they both share in the work of virtue that men and women are both called to chastity. Men and women are both called to excellence. Men and women are both called to human flourishing. And though you can always find a man who is way too emotional or a woman who is wonderfully rational, you can always find variations in gender. But on the whole, human beings are human beings. Male and female, God created them. And so uh, what happened with Wollstonecraft was that uh, she'd gotten into a relationship with a man in American because she got very excited about the American uh, Revolution, and she thought that was going to change everything. So she had a child with the man, didn't marry him. Then she actually died in childbirth about five years after writing uh, The Vindication of the Rights of Women. She died giving birth to Mary Shelley, interestingly enough, the wife of Percy Bysshe Shelley, the romantic poet, and in her own right, the, the author of Frankenstein and other less popular works. But Frankenstein's been obviously a work of enduring power in the Western canon. When she died, she was married to a, uh, an anarchist, basically, William Godwin, who portrayed her as a free love enthusiast. And she was not a free love enthusiast, according to Erica Bacchiacci. Instead, she was so put off by coverture marriage that the idea is that when she married, her husband would own all of her writings, own all of her work, control what she thought, control what she said. And so she wanted a family. She wanted a virtuous marriage. But coverture marriage just would basically degrade women. And so she started the movement, which basically started unseat coverture marriage, um, in the 19th century in England and spread to our own country. I would point out that the Catholic countries did not have coverture marriage. We had what's called community property laws, but that's a, a very different inquiry. Uh, the book that Bacchiacci writes is how all this comes off the track, and it really comes off the track, according to her, because of industrialization. And what increasingly happens in the women's movement is they want to be valued the same way that men are valued. And that's by production. How big is your paycheck? How impressive is your job? To basically reduce people to either physical or intellectual accomplishment. 
not the good, not eudaimonia as Aristotle and Mary Wollstonecraft would uh, understand it. So Bacchiocci, as, as, as we are unfolding uh, in the modern world, the damage that a very distorted women's movement that relies on the autonomy of woman founded on abortion, Mary Wollstonecraft would have said, no, the dignity of man and woman is really based in the family. The dignity of man and woman is also in the work that they perform, and that dignity is rooted in virtue. So think about this in terms of the Holy Spirit. You know, you can take the Holy Spirit and you can just completely abstract it, like uh, a wind blowing through a room. Or you could take a look at what it did to the apostles, that it made them the disciples that Jesus was trying to form them into. It's reason why we're talking about the Catholic faith 2,000 years plus after the events recounted in Acts of the Apostles. And so the work of the Spirit has taken on all sorts of, of real manifestations. Religious life uh, is a really good one for men and women. But friends, don't let marriage out as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit and a life of virtue. Think about how important marriage is and relationship is. A marriage based on a common life of virtue shared between husband and wife, lifted up in prayer, sanctified by the sacraments, given a sense of understanding and purpose about the meaning of your life by contemplation and meditation on the scriptures. I loved uh, Erica Bacchiacci's book, and I've, I've recommended it to anyone who wants to read it because I think it gives a great background as to how we got where we are today as we think about the Dobbs opinion that's coming down, whichever way it should go. But regardless of what the Supreme Court does, if you want to have an impact on your life, invite the Holy Spirit into your marriage. If you're dating, invite the Holy Spirit into your growth and relationship. If you're a kid, invite the Holy Spirit in how you relate to your parents and your teachers. And that spirit can be is accessed through the sacraments, through the scripture. But when the rubber hits the road, it's whether you're just, you make good choices, whether you're courageous, and, and whether or not you can control yourselves. And in living that, you come to full human flourishing. As Aquinas would correct Aristotle, full human flourishing is the life of the saint. And so Pentecost, it really is more, more about just human beings happy, being happy. Pentecost is about human beings becoming fully alive. Remember what St. Iris said, the glory of God is the human being, that is you and me, fully alive. So this has been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic. Give me a like, and uh, we'll see you again hopefully next week.